that we are in now, but uh, it wasn't a crazy surprise because the city where we came from, Vancouver, is quite crazy as well. well let me give you a little bit of a picture of that. Uh, in some ways, like DC, the housing market is under criticism in Vancouver because of people who come in and, and buy up the property like it's monopoly. And so, for example, this is how it works. For the cost of, you know, 5 to 10% deposit on a new build, uh, you can secure a new place and, you know, for completion in a couple of years later. But because of the crazy market, it goes up, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in that year's time. So say just using a million dollars, I know it's kind of a crazy number, but it's easy to remember. Uh, you have a million dollar property, you put a $50,000 deposit down, and in two or three years, it's worth $250,000 more. You've made $200,000 in just a couple of years. And you don't even have to, and so what people will do is flip them before completion, so you don't even have to pay property tax. And so, there's many homes that get bought, and prices go up like crazy, that even people who live and work there can't afford to buy there. This has led to some once vibrant neighborhoods turn into lifeless blocks where you can count on one hand houses that have residents actively living in them because investors will continue to just hold on to them, counting on the value to increase at a faster rate than lending would. So all these numbers, you know, you didn't come to church today to learn about real estate. But what this shows is the greed or wisdom, depending on which side of the coin you, you like to look at, of investors. This greed of investors is causing a massive shift in this community. Professionals can't afford to live in the city they work in anymore. Community breaks down because there aren't neighbors to talk to, to look towards and look out for one another. And local businesses can't survive as there aren't enough people living around to service them. But how do you fix a problem like this? You need some external intervention because of new laws and policies to slow things down, but you also need internal intervention to change the hearts of those who are buying property. We're continuing this God's Story, Our Story sermon series where we continue to look at how Christ is revealed in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And today we're looking at one particular point in Israel's history that is incredibly depressing. God's people are living far from God's promises. And yet we find God's promise is not broken. Though they were given God's playbook for how to live and to relate to one another, they were given land, they were given a king even to rule over them. Israel finds themselves even further from God's promise of blessing that he gave to Abraham. They have no real king. Their people have become fractured and displaced. Most of the tribes are lost literally and figuratively. They're lost literally because many of them have begun to uh, mix with other people groups and begun worshiping other gods. And because of that, figuratively, they have, they're lost. They've turned away from the God who called them, walking in ways that dishonor their humanity and their call to be image bearers of God. So we're going to look at how we like the people of Israel, find ourselves drifting from God, drifting from justice, yet we find ourselves divinely rescued. The texts we read today come from the prophets, most of them here in this case from Jeremiah. These prophets make up the latter half of the Old Testament. 
These prophetic books span hundreds of years, and each prophet spoke to a different group of Israelites. So each prophetic book is situational and specific to their circumstances. So understanding all the history behind it is often helpful. While there are some elements of predicting future events found in these writings, this isn't the primary emphasis. Rather, God uses prophets to call his people to accountability and responsibility in their relationship with God because they're stuck in quite a mess. Robert Redford stars and directs in this movie, All is Lost. He plays a sailor who makes a solo journey across the Indian Ocean. But he finds after a collision at night with an errant shipping container, he wakes up to find his ship is taking on water. Now, he's a relatively experienced sailor, so he begins to patch things together. But, he, but right after that, he finds himself caught in a tempest. And so his communication equipment gets knocked out, and he has nothing to navigate with except the traditional navigational tools. He's eventually forced to abandon his boat. Sorry if I'm ruining this for you if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> Depending on solely on the ocean currents to carry his life raft, hopefully back into shipping lanes where he'll be noticed by someone. But then his life raft begins to disintegrate around him. His supplies run out, and he begins to confront his imminent death. What started out as a glorious journey had turned into an uncontrolled drift towards oblivion. Now, it's an apt description for God's people in Jeremiah's time, too. By now, the once glorious kingdom of God's people that peaked under King David and Solomon had split into two kingdoms, to Judah and Israel. And the Lord speaks to the kingdom of Judah through the prophet Jeremiah and accuses them of drifting away from him as God, as a provider, as a protector, and as their guide. He says to them in verse 5, What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. For the Israelites, a big reason for their mess because they had forgotten what it looked like to trust the living God. They turned to idols, things created by humans, and Jeremiah points out how their drift begins. In verse 13, He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Their mess was the result of two core sins, forsaking God as the spring of living water and digging their own cisterns. In Palestine, where the Israelites settled, there were three sources of water. One was a natural spring burst from the ground. Another was the groundwater that's collected in a well from which you would draw. And the third would be a cistern formed of limestone, almost like a pit in the ground that would collect runoff. Jeremiah's image expresses how Israel not only traded the best water for the worst, but that the cistern they built is broken, unable to hold anything except a bit of sludge left over. Imagine trading your delivered, filtered, bottled spring water for a mud ditch that runs off the Anacostia River and drinking from that. Not only were the Israelites ungrateful, they were foolish. Some of the messes we find ourselves in are because of larger things that we cannot control. But many of the messes we can find ourselves in are because we choose to drink from a swamp or from toilet water 
rather than the source of life. But you know what? No one sets out one morning to say, I'm going to drink from a mud ditch. It happens as a slow drift. No one wakes up one morning and says, today I'm going to become an addict. It's a slow drift, one small step at a time. We build our dirty little cisterns through one small nudge of mud. It's like, oh, look at that. Collect some water. Hmm, Maybe I can drink it. Maybe I build it up some more. Think of our relationship with our smartphones. Before I got a smartphone, I would watch TV on my TV. I would call my friends on a landline. I would catch up on emails on my computer and then wake myself up with an alarm clock. But then along came one of these, right? Let's go, hmm, I can set my alarm and I can pick my own music. Amazing. How convenient. I'll sit it right beside my bed. Well, since it's now beside my bed, I I guess I'll move my charger from the counter and put it beside my bed. And then as I'm going to bed, I'll plug it in. It's like, oh, there's some notifications I haven't seen yet. So I open those. And then I begin to click the link that my friend sent me. Yo, check out this video. And then two hours later, I'm still on YouTube (laughs) following all the recommended links. And pretty soon, I find myself picking up my phone at various points in the day for no reason at all. I'm addicted. I never set out to be addicted to my phone. I just slowly drifted there. When we find ourselves much further out than when we intended, it's often much, and it's, we often find ourselves further out than we intended. And it's only when we're far out that we recognize that we're too far down the path. It's all those little nudges that slowly drift us away from where we intended to be. So how do we recognize this drift away from God before we find ourselves in a mess? The Lord describes the idolatry of Israel in a very colorful and vulgar term. In 2.24, he says, You are like a donkey in heat, sniffing in the wind in her craving. He interestingly only points out one key piece of evidence in this drift towards idolatry. It's how they treat the poor and the vulnerable. In 2 verse 34, he says, On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. For the living God, injustice in society is a key sign of idolatry in our drift away from him. Especially when those people are innocent, that is a reflection of our idolatry. We have put some other figure or some other agenda ahead of the living God. And at its core, idolatry is a failure to trust in the living God as good. God points to our idolatry when we ride the backs of the innocent for selfish gain. And even further, our complicity is reflected in our vehement denial of guilt, as Israel did. They say, I'm innocent in all this. God, you're not. You shouldn't be angry with me. I fully admit In this media-saturated culture, it's very easy to point out injustice and apparent guilt of those around us. After all, we live in D.C., right? It's pretty much every day outside the White House. I passed by there twice in a couple days, on one day this week. And there's always a small group of protesters raising awareness about some apparent injustice that's going on. And yesterday it happened on the steps of the Supreme Court for many that felt like that was an unjust decision. We can shake our fists at the tremendous injustices that are evident in the world. And we can point out when others seem to take advantage of others. But what about when we take advantage of others? 
invite you to consider how this shows up in our lives. When do we find ourselves saying, I'm innocent, God, you shouldn't be angry with me? Where do we find ourselves feigning innocence or rationalizing our thoughts and actions? It can show up in the littlest of things, like tipping. For most of my life, I found tipping to be a really strange practice, and it varies so widely around the world. Actually, I still find it really confusing. Because it all depends on what region you live in, or where you're at, what kind of service industry you're relating to, and what kind of service is given. Do you tip at counter and pickup restaurants, or versus dine-in restaurants? Do you know if the dine-in restaurant pays a living wage or not? And how do their servers get their tips, and what's the role of it? What about other service industries? If you go on an organized tour and a group organizer starts asking for tips that they'll pass on to the, each attraction, are you supposed to give it to them? It's really confusing. But I still, that I can make all the rationalizations. This is too confusing. I'm not going to do this. But I found myself deeply convicted when I realized my pursuit of efficiency and economic frugality was in fact unjust and it dehumanized those around me. Most recently, I felt convicted about failing to tip the crew that helped us move in our stuff when we arrived here in D.C. I said, well, we negotiated, we paid a big chunk of change for this move and surely they paid this crew well. But I realized I couldn't make that assumption, so I reached out to the movers to find out how I can contact the actual crew that, has, that helped us move because we didn't tip them that day. So I said, oh, we better at least try to get something to them to acknowledge them because I know that they're probably the least powerful in this whole process. They're not this big organization. They're just the dudes moving all the stuff on a hot day for us. I idolize my money more than the fair treatment of the people who serve my family. Injustice shows up especially when we treat another human as a lesser than. Injustice takes from another human's dignity and honor. Injustice shows up when we mock and ridicule a person for their place in society or for the story that they tell. Injustice shows up when we exclude people because we've already made a judgment on them based solely on our perception of them. Injustice shows up when we elevate people or we write them off because of what they look like or because of who they associate with. Injustice creeps in everywhere. And when injustice creeps its ugly head in our lives, those are signs for us to recognize our drift away from God. Injustice and idolatry are two sides of the same coin. When we begin to make something a priority above God, we find ourselves beginning to treat others without the dignity of our common humanity. Israel needed someone who could not only fix their situation with a leader and with their land. They needed someone to fix their hearts. They needed someone to fix their, this continuous drift away from the living God of the universe. And as we've been learning through this series with Israel as a case study so far, our hearts are incredibly fickle. No matter how well-intentioned we are, we can't help this tendency to be self-reliant, to be self-sufficient. And even as we think we're being self-reflective and 
desiring to please God, we, are, we find ourselves being self-centered. The prophet Jeremiah says in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what's the way out for us? Robert Redford's character in the movie found himself in a drift that was inevitable and unrecoverable. He could only get out of the situation with outside intervention. He couldn't solve it himself. No matter how experienced, no matter how smart he was. Israel, too, finds themselves stuck in an eternal drift away from God into idolatry and injustice. Now, the way out isn't just to become more just. Reinhold Niebuhr, the respected 20th century American pastor and theologian who ministered in Detroit during the rise of nationalism in Nazi Germany, he impacts this call to justice by saying how human reason and ingenuity cannot be the foundation for justice because reason alone can always be subject to corruptions of self-interest. He's just repeating what Jeremiah said many thousands of years ago. The only way to enhance justice fully is with love, he says. When our hearts encounter the true love of founding God, our hearts are filled with gratitude and humility. And only then can our hearts drift away from injustice and idolatry and back towards love and true justice in our world. Love is an end where justice is the means. Love is the final goal towards which justice moves. So to truly overcome injustice and idolatry in our hearts, we must be divinely rescued. We must encounter this true love. And the living God demonstrates this love for us and for his people by sending, uh, promising to free them from their idolatry and injustice by sending a new leader. He says to them in 33.15, In those days and times I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in this land, and in those days Judah will be saved. This righteous branch that comes to rescue Israel and Judah is Jesus. True love comes to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus comes to lead the world in justice and peace by leading the hearts of his people first. This change of heart and attitude comes as God makes a new covenant with his people. Israel's history has proved that it is impossible to follow God without drifting away because what needs to change is our hearts. The rescue that we all need isn't simply political or social or economic. The rescue that we need is spiritual and relational. And so Jeremiah says to them, This is the covenant I will make with the people of God. This is a new promise I will make. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. With Jesus' arrival, the possibility for humanity to truly love God and to truly love others fully and to live and act justly is made possible. Jesus comes to forgive us. He comes to set us free from the consequences of us drifting away from him into idolatry and into injustice. And throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we see how this love of God propels him to bring dignity to the oppressed. 
And on the cross, we see all of us who are most oppressed by sin and the power of it over our lives set free. We see on the cross righteousness and justice kiss. And on God's love, it pour, it's poured out for all to receive. Through this divine act of rescue, he gives us a new heart that recognizes our idols, that frees us to trust him as a true leader over our lives. Because we experience his love for us in Christ, we are given capacity to love and to serve and to act justly. Wherever you find idolatry and injustice creeping up in your lives or in your world, causing you to drift from God, come to Jesus and find forgiveness and find freedom. Recall the charge earlier against the Israelites that Jeremiah made about them drinking from broken cisterns rather than from the spring of life. When we come to know God's love for us and we, when we respond to his gift of love and forgiveness, we find our hearts are changed and we are filled with a new power to live and a new power to love. Our hearts become springs of hope and justice and peace because our hearts are changed by the one true source of all these things. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That stream is Jesus. So will you come to him and drink? Amen.